What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of The Roarcast. I'm Mike Kowalski, joined by Megan Rojas. Kyle Matrician is on assignment. Not with us Kyle. Today. I'm Kyle on vacation, and I recorded, and I don't know what Kyle's excuse is, so just, I don't Kyle. know. But we missed him Kyle. today. Poor Kyle, he really missed a great episode. Ben was such a great person to talk to. Yeah, we had a great conversation with former Ben's basketball player, Ben Wachukwu, uh, who is a orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City and currently is in the NBA bubble. So you're going to get an inside look at, you know, from kind of the beginning, uh, he was born in Nigeria. He walks us through get it coming to Columbia, how he got into the medical profession, um, and how he's dealing with life in the NBA bubble. So we had a really good hour-long chat with Ben, and we really appreciate him taking some time out of his busy schedule to talk to us instead of uh, doing tele- telemedicine with his his patients. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ben has a great blog that I read a bunch about before this interview to prep a little bit. Um, and it, he talks about, and he talked a little bit about it in this hour-long interview, he talks a lot about the day-to-day in the NBA bubble and what a day looks like and the technology behind all the things we hear about but don't really have a first-hand experience. Um, he talks a lot about, about a lot about the sports tech and the wearables and what gets you in which parts of the bubble. And it was all very interesting. It was things that we've heard and read or might have seen people talk about on TV, but a really first-hand look at what it's like in 2020 to be at the NBA bubble. And he may or may not have had a hand in getting Luka Doncic's ankle ready for game two against the Clippers. So a little tease there. You're going to have to listen till the end of the episode to find out if that's a factor, if I'm just making that up or not. All right, Mike. Well, so after a quick little break, uh, we will be back and speak to Ben about his life in the NBA bubble and how it's been. Stick around. We all know what comes with being a fan, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Share a Coke with a friend. Coca-Cola, the official beverage of the Columbia Lions. JAG-1 Physical Therapy is a proud partner of the Columbia Lions. With state-of-the-art rehabilitation equipment and facilities, allow us to develop a specific plan catered to each patient. The JAG-1 team proudly serves the tri-state area with facilities throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Westchester, Long Island, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. We're here for you. Get back the life you love. Visit www.jag1pt.com. That's J-A-G-O-N-E-P-T.com for more information. We are back and we are happy to be joined by Dr. Ben Wachuku. Uh, who is in the NBA bubble, former basketball player here at Columbia. So, Ben, thanks uh, so much for coming on and taking some time with us this morning. Hey, Mike and Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be on the podcast today. So let's just kind of jump in. Uh, You were born in Nigeria, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, I've had a bit of a circuitous path in life. So I was born in Nigeria, and I left Nigeria when I was seven, and I actually grew up in London. Um, so I lived in London from 7 to 16, um, and then I came over to the States when I was 16, um, you know, lived with a host family, uh, played basketball at a prep school in New Jersey, and then, um, and then I went to Columbia. And 
Talk about your experience, you know, coming to an Ivy League school, playing basketball for four years. What was that experience like for you both academically and athletically? Yeah, I mean, you know, first off, I'd love to say that it was an incredible experience. Huge plug for Columbia and Columbia Athletics. Um, really transformative uh, four years for me. Um, you know, I would say that um, it was a lot of growth, right? As with any collegiate athlete, um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself and you, you know, mature into adulthood. Um, the first year was was pretty difficult, right? Because to that point, academically, I had been very fortunate where um, I didn't really struggle. And, you know, I just had straight A's and, um, you know, things just came to me and I focused on basketball. And, you know, as a student athlete at Columbia, I really had to focus in on both, right? You had to actually wear both hats. And um, I was humbled um, in my first semester with general chemistry. I'll never forget that, where um, you know, I didn't have exactly the grade that I thought. It was the first time that I, you know, didn't have an A and I struggled. Um, and I just remember talking to my mom at that time. My mom was in Nigeria and, you know, she just, she just said, this is what you do. You just have to focus in, you have to, um, you know, focusing on your books, focusing on basketball and make sure that you can combine uh, the two. And, and I would say that I was able to find uh, institutional support, um, you know, people like Jackie Blackett at, uh, within the Columbia University Athletic Department. Um, she was able to find me um, tutors and things like that where, you know, I was able to combine um, playing sports and also being pre-med student. I, I think that um, Columbia is, uh, you know, they hold their student athletes to the highest standards where, you know, they're not going to let you slack. They're not going to give you the um, what's called the gentleman's A that uh, other uh, Ivy League institutions do. Um, and so um, it was great. I, I had a great experience and it's something that I look back on very fondly. Did you know going into Columbia that your dream was to be a doctor or is that something you found out along the way? Yeah. So, you know, my mom is a nurse, so I'd always been around healthcare. So I knew I wanted to be involved in healthcare to a certain degree and, um, you know, again, I was very fortunate to have these experiences while I was at Columbia, where I was exposed to uh, healthcare to varying degrees. So um, between my freshman and my sophomore year, I was in a, a lab with uh, Richard Axel at Columbia University Medical Department. He's actually a Nobel laureate for, um, you know, his work on olfaction or the sense of smell in the human system. So explored a little bit of the basic science. Wasn't sure if maybe I wanted to become a hardcore researcher. And then the following summer, I spent time with uh, Mehmet Oz, who, um, you know, from uh, Dr. Oz show fame, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon at Columbia. And so got to experience a little bit about the surgical side of things. And after that, I, I really became interested in surgery. And then um, <clears throat> I, I got the opportunity to actually intern with Dr. David Alchek at uh, Hospital for Special Surgery, which is actually where I work right now. And I have an office down the hall from him. But um, you know, that was my first introduction into orthopedic surgery. Um, you know, I, I realized then that I wanted to do orthopedics. I saw the interaction that Dr. Alchek had with his patients where, you know, you could produce tangible uh, change and benefit to um, his sports medicine patients, patients who are uh, motivated to get better, um, have tangible problems, and you could make an immediate impact. And 
something that he found very gratifying and, you know, I have come to uh, find some of satisfaction. So I would say that, you know, I knew I wanted to go into medicine and over the course of my time at Columbia, I realized my interest for, um, you know, being an orthopedic surgeon, going into surgical fields. And obviously I went to medical school with an open mind, um, but medical school just served to conf confirm the things that I thought I wanted to do for, from an undergrad. Love the casual name drops of Dr. Oz and yeah. David Jack, like very only here moment right there. Right. <laughs> he said, you know, he's got a show. <laughs> this is no big deal. It's just New York City. You only work with like the best doctors and stuff like that. So, I mean, you, you know, That's how awesome. fortunate do you feel like that you were at Columbia and you're able to experience that, for, you know, to get that experience and kind of direct to where you needed to be? Well, that's exactly right. That's kind of one of those things that, um, you know, you can say only at Columbia, right? Where, um, you know, during the year, I, you know, you work hard, you, you know, go to your orgo labs and do the chemistry sets and all those good things. And obviously, you know, you play the Ivy League season, play basketball, but then in the summer, you get to have these, you know, awesome internships at, you know, the number one orthopedic hospital or with, you know, famous cardiothoracic surgeon or Nobel laureate. Not to say that that opportunity isn't at other institutions, but there's something very unique at Columbia where there's this concentration of, you know, intellectual capital, as well as being in, you know, one of the most vibrant cities in the world. That's definitely something that we pitch to people or student athletes who come play basketball and student athletes in general at Columbia, the opportunities outside of just your, your two semesters that you have is the ability to go work anywhere in New York. There's so much possibility that you obviously took great advantage of. Yeah. And look, you know, for me being international, uh, you know, obviously like I, I would want to go home for a few weeks here and there and see the family. But, you know, for the four years that I was there, you know, Columbia was home, right? Like yeah. my form, that was, that was home. That was my home base. And um, wanted to take advantage of the city and immerse myself in New York as much as possible. And, you know, uh, New York, I, obviously I grew up in London. New York reminds me so much of London. And I, I very much love the cosmopolitan feel, the diversity of New York, and all of that really spoke to me, and I never really wanted to leave. Let's go switch gears a little bit and go down memory lane of your basketball career. Did you play for Coach Engels when he was an assistant here? Yes, I did. So I, I played for uh, Jim Engels. Uh, he was an assistant. And, you know, it, it was it was interesting because he left, um, you know, I, I think it was my junior year um, to go uh, coach at uh, NJIT. And, you know, he just did great things. And we weren't surprised at all when he was successful as a head coach and that he came back but just because he was such a good coach and he was such a good assistant. And I remember as a player, him being someone that you lean on, right? You know, you always have the assistants who you go to maybe more than others and where you can say, you know, I had this tough game or I feel like my shot just isn't falling and, you know, we would shoot foul shots together, things like that. And he was just always a, you know, sane uh, voice and voice of reason. And I just really appreciated my time with him as an undergrad. What are some other things that you remember from your playing days and some of your teammates that you like to keep in touch with? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, so we, I would say that uh, we have done a pretty good 
job of all staying in touch, right? So playing collegiate sports has this thing where um, it creates a bond that is, uh, I think it's indelible, right? Where you can basically meet up at someone's wedding and you essentially just pick up right back where you left off. And so some of the things that we sort of talk about at the weddings were, um, you know, some of the tough practices that we had where, you know, you were just exhausted and you're, you know, scrapping for that starting position. And you know that, at least for me, you know that you're a starter, but there's someone who's nipping at your heels. Um, and there's the practice squad that is just absolutely destroying you. And you're supposed to be the starting team. And, you know, it's just not going according to plan. Those battles and practices are some of the things that we talk about, um, as well as some of the some of the memorable games, right? So, you know, I had the opportunity to play uh, Cameron Indoor when we played Duke. And, you know, just those experiences of playing some of the highest level competition or playing Madison Square Garden are things that, you know, we look back on um, fondly and we talk about to this day. Um, you know, shout out to uh, my classmates uh, who I still keep in touch with and our classmate uh, text thread, so. I guess, so kind of going back, you know, you finished your four years at Columbia, you know, played here, got your degree and everything. What made you go to the dark side and get your MBA and PhD at Harvard? <laughs> that's, that's great. So, so I, I just, I just have an MBA. I wish I had a PhD. So thank you for the kudos on that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, it's very curious. Um, when I, when I got into Harvard, it was, it was sort of a dream. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that I got into Harvard. And the funny thing is that my interview at Harvard Med, um, we spent most of the time talking about basketball. And so I kind of was just like, oh, this interview is interviewer is kind of blowing me off because he just thinks I'm an athlete. Um, but you know, we we're able to talk about basketball and he asked me how I basically was able to combine the two. Um, and he asked me about my day-to-day -day routine and I broke it down. And I remember as a 22 year old being kind of nonchalant about it, you know, saying, oh, I wake up, I go to class, I go to practice, I ice, I go to lab, I do, you know, then I go do lifting sessions in the evening and then I finish up more homework and then I go to bed and wake up and he's like, oh my gosh, how many, how many times a week is that? I'm like, how many times a week? That's six days a week. And then on the off days, I have to go do my knee treatments because have jumpers knee and you know he was just amazed at you know the fact that he was able to have good grades and things like that so uh so that's sort of the transition to harvard so when i got into harvard i was i was shocked i was like oh this is awesome i guess someone does appreciate you know being able to balance being a student athlete um when i got to harvard it was an interesting time in the sort of healthcare landscape right where um this was 2008 and there was talks about healthcare reform and the idea that there are not enough physician leaders in healthcare. And so part of the reason why there are not enough physician leaders is that the traditional healthcare curriculum for doctors is around, you know, how to be a good doctor and, you know, patient interaction. And obviously that's super important and that's a must, you must have that. But, you know, I think that there's a role to uh, train doctors who think about healthcare policy and systems changes, right? So the healthcare system in the United States is, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, it's broken. And there are people in our healthcare system who don't have access to insurance. 
um, there's waste in the healthcare system. And so um, being able to understand that from the physician perspective and understand how to implement change was super important. And Harvard has a stated goal of training physician leaders. So the getting the MD and the MBA was a natural fit for me because, you know, I have aspirations to have, uh, you know, system-wide change. And so um, I jumped on the opportunity. I applied to HBS. I took the um, GMAT um, during my first year of med school and I, I got in. And those experiences you talked about earlier with, you know, at Columbia, that, that kind of directly, you knew you wanted to go into orthopedic surgery. That's, that's kind of what drew you into to that field? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, during medical school, you have the first two years where, you know, you're in the classroom, you're learning the books and things like that, uh, learning the basic science. And then in your third year, um, you then are exposed to various uh, fields and subspecialties. And I would say that of all the subspecialties I was exposed to, I kept on coming back to orthopedic surgery, where for me, it was just the most impactful. Um, I realized that, um, you know, one, there's a high volume of musculoskeletal or orthopedic problems, right? So as our population gets older, there's this statistic that, you know, one in three Americans has a musculoskeletal problem. And so it struck true to me that it's potentially an area where I could reach a large number of people. Um, and then also just the work that I did as an orthopedic surgeon, I felt would be more impactful, right? So in my day to day, um, when I've operated on a patient and they come back to see me at the six month visit and they're pain free, I'll tell you, there's very little that is uh, more enjoyable to me than um, seeing that patient in the office and having them be pain free. And, you know, so, so yeah, med school confirmed that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And thus far in my career, I think that that was the, that was the right choice. Walk us through that, that the first time you're in an operating room and you know, what that feeling was like, how nervous were you or like, did it feel natural to you when you, you first were able to do that? Like, I, I can't even imagine, you know, walking in there and, and, you know, having people's lives in your hands, literally, you know? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. So the, I would say that there are various firsts in terms of in the operating room. So I was in the operating room as a college student and you know that's sort of a low barrier to entry as a first you you know i'm not scrubbed in you're just watching and you ha i don't even know what i'm looking at at that point um then as a med student there's the first time in the operating room as a med student where you say oh goodness i hope that i am not squeamish and that i don't pass out because you certainly hear that in med school and you know you say if i go into this operating room and i see blood and i see someone you know cut someone open and I pass out, it turns out that I should just probably be primary care physician or something like that. You know, obviously no knock on primary care physicians, but it, you just shouldn't see blood. Um, and so that was okay. So once I, once I uh, got past that, I was like, okay, good. I can deal with blood and, you know, scalpels and things like that. Um, and, but I would say that the biggest uh, jump was probably as a resident um, when you are training to do the surgeries. And um, the first time that uh, one of my uh, mentors gave me the scalpel to make the incision, I sort of had an out-of-body experience where <clears throat> I said, oh my gosh, I'm actually cutting someone open and you're making an incision on someone's skin. And, you know, that in that moment, it really just validated just how truly special and how much of a privilege it is 
to do what I do, right? Because, you know, that patient is asleep and they're trusting you and trusting the doctors to take care of them. And you're cutting them open, you know, for lack of a better word. And I, I never actually thought about what that meant until that moment. And, um, you know, it was, it was really kind of a surreal, surreal moment for me. Wow. I can't even, I don't even know what to say. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> That's awesome. And I want to ask you a question. It's kind of a two-part question that, and you, I know you can't name names, but have you had to operate on a Columbia student athlete? And if so, like how surreal is that as a former student at Columbia, if you've had to do that? Yeah, you know, obviously not able to name names, but I have had the opportunity to um, operate on um, quite a few Columbia uh, student athletes. And um, it, it's, it's been a, a thing of immense pride, right? Where, um, you know, you operate on, you know, the first student athlete and then, you know, they refer someone um, to have surgery with you and that lets you know that, you know, you did a good job and um, you sort of build that word of mouth. And um, honestly, being able to take care of people who were in the position that I was um, is super important to me, super impactful because, you know, I, I know what it was like to be a student athlete at Columbia um, and having questions about, um, my musculoskeletal problems. I've seen student athletes who I don't operate on, but I just spend 30, 45 minutes just explaining to them what's going on, how to have a good program um, to address their issues. Because, you know, look, I, I think that there are things that sometimes can get lost in translation um, and it can be very binary. It's, you know, you need surgery, you don't need surgery, but there's sort of this in-between around sports performance where you can say look you have this problem it doesn't need surgery but there are things that you can do to allow you to play better and to not have uh, pain when you play uh, and I think that I so far do a nice job of helping uh, student athletes um, bridge that gap. Was there a moment that you had when you were a student athlete and you were do you have any injuries that maybe you needed surgery on and you were like, had an epiphany that maybe that was something that you wanted to be able to help other student athletes or athletes. Now you're working more professionally. Yeah. So, you know, luckily I never got hurt as a uh, Columbia athlete. And um, so, I, but I always, I was always in the training room. I always had, you know, yeah. like jumpers knees and, you know, you know, issues when you're, when you have a six, eight frame, it turns out that, you know, there's just more torque on different joints and things like that, but never got hurt. Um, in medical school, actually, I ended up rupturing my Achilles. And oh, wow. I would say that my, my orthopedic surgeon who did my surgery, he was excellent. He was an excellent doctor. And, you know, he really showed me the roadmap of how to be a good doctor and just how much of an impact it is, right? I, I never really had an injury where I needed surgery. And I just remember the night before my orthopedic surgery, before my Achilles repair, just feeling, um, feeling alone, right? You have people around you, but just feeling, you know, alone and trying to um, roadmap what the next year is going to be like, right? It's a year of recovery and yeah. not wanting to rely on people and, um, you know, wanting to 
um, you know, be as independent as possible, but obviously knowing that you need help. And, um, you know, it was really helpful going through that process, right? Because I had friends who, um, you know, brought me food after the surgery and helped me. I was in, at the time I was, uh, it was my first year of business school. I had friends who helped me, you know, get to class and things like that. Um, and my, but my surgeon, you know, he, before the surgery, he explained everything. He was super clear. Um, and he was actually the first person I saw when I woke up. I remember waking up and just seeing him sitting there waiting for me to wake up and he explained that the surgery and how it went. And then he called me, um, when I got home and I, I do that to this day, anyone that I operate on, I always call them, um, either in the evening or the next morning just to touch base with them because, you know, you can have the anesthesia on board. You may not remember everything, but it's just, there's so much confusion and you can, again, you can feel so, um, you know, so alone, you don't want the doctor to add any more confusion. You want to make sure that you are there for your patient. And so um, that, I think that that experience, I hope makes me a better doctor having been uh, an orthopedic patient myself. At this point, just roughly how many surgeries have you done since you've graduated from med school? That's, that's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, um, hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> Probably in the ballpark of uh, 2,500 since med school. Wow. Um, wow. You know, orthopedic surgery is a, is a high volume uh, field. And so, you know, we do a lot of uh, surgeries and obviously during your training, you do a high volume. And so I'm fortunate to uh, have done so many and to have touched so many lives. That's amazing. They don't they don't do stats of surgery numbers like they do in basketball. <laughs> they they do they they do <laughs> they do. So, um, no, it's 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 curious. No one does sort of lifetime or career stats, but they do sort of <laughs> annual stats. So you huh. know, I know what my annual stats are and you know how many surgeries I've done in 2020, um, but I don't know how many surgeries I've done in the past seven years. Seven years. Wow. It's amazing. It's incredible. I love yeah. that you just pull everything. You have such good stories that you pull experiences into now what you do as a career. Yeah, look, I, I've been super fortunate and, um, you know, sort of, I don't want to steal you guys thunder, but, um, you know, right now I'm in NBA bubble and, um, you know, being here, I, I feel uniquely uh, privileged to be able to take care of these athletes because obviously I was never in the NBA, but I can sort of relate to what it's like to be yeah. a high level athlete um, and to, you know, try to navigate the tension of, you know, playing for your team, um, playing for your teammates, um, but also making sure that you are able to perform at peak level and that you're taking care of your health. You just, you know, you kind of transitioned to where we we're going to go, but before we get into your role with the NBA right now, um, what was what were you doing at the beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic? Did your role change from surgery? Did, were you doing different things? Obviously, elective surgeries were being postponed from the from March to about May or June or whatever. But um, talk about how things shifted for you once the pandemic kind of hit. Yeah, that that's a really really great question. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so you know the pandemic. Um, was, you know, and as I'm sure it was for a lot of people, but it, it was a shock to the system, right? Where um, I remember the day that our hospital shut down, it was a Monday um, and in the middle of March. 
And, you know, I have the same routine where I'll see, you know, a certain number of patients on Monday and then I'll prepare for my surgeries on Tuesday. And I usually will have a, you know, large big OR day on, on Tuesday where I, you know, I do a fair number of surgeries. And, you know, I had to cancel my cases on the Tuesday. And, you know, these are, you know, everything I just said where, you know, patients are planning their lives around, you know, doing the surgery. Um, you know, I didn't have to call them and explain that, you know, there's deadly virus going around and it's just not safe to have your surgery until we understand more and um, you know then they sort of ask well when can I have the surgery and you know you're at that point you're really just guessing right and I'm embarrassed to say that my guesswork was completely off you know I thought maybe we'd shut down for a few weeks and but as I talked to my medical colleagues I, I realized that this is something that um, is, was going to stick around with us for a long time and you just had no idea what the future um had in hold had in tow for us so um so the short answer is i immediately shut down my practice and stopped seeing patients in person um the hospital that i work at hospital special surgery did an excellent job of um, providing virtual care so i would say probably within about seven to ten days i was able to transition um, my visits to virtual and started seeing patients virtually where um, I've actually been surprised at how much um, you can accomplish by telemedicine, right? So healthcare is not like any other, is, is just like every other industry where you can do things via Zoom. So my telemedicine encounters um, are via Zoom. And if a patient gets an x-ray and an MRI, we can review that. And actually, I think in some situations, it's probably more appropriate to do a virtual visit than an in-person mm -hmm. visit. Um, so, so that's where my practice went. Um, it went towards, um, you know, basically um, doing, providing telemedicine. And then the hospital actually started taking care of COVID patients. Um, so, you know, HSS is a hospital for special surgery is a standalone orthopedic hospital. So we don't have traditional medical departments. Uh, and so historically, we would not be able to take care of a sick COVID patient. But, you know, given the, you know, severity of the uh, disease burden in New York City, um, HSS did an admirable job of converting um, IC, uh, uh, operating rooms and recovery rooms into ICUs and, um, you know, medical units. Um, our anesthesiologists uh, converted and things like that. And um, so I helped out in the hospital to, you know, provide some of that COVID uh, care. Um, and, you know, it, you sort of do what you can in, in the pandemic. Um, but that's sort of how my role changed uh, during uh, those six weeks of the COVID shutdown. And kind of now let's move forward to where you are now. You're in Orlando, you're in the NBA bubble. Uh, ben is actually uh, documenting his time down there, so you can visit his website at manhattansportsdoc.com. We'll post links on our social media pages uh, for that, so you can check that out. Um, how did you get involved in the NBA, and how were you invited to, to go down there? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in my uh, regular day job, pre-COVID, pre-bubble, I am a medical consultant with the NBA Players Association. So um, the NBA, just like every league, has a players association, um, and the players association uh, does a tremendous job of, you know, uh, working lock and step with the NBA and advocating for players' health and, you know, being a neutral party, neutral party and things like that. And 
Um, I, in that role, uh, I'm a medical consultant uh, where, you know, they can reach out to me uh, for issues and things like that. Um, and so um, as the bubble concept came about, uh, the MBA was uh, basically interviewing, um, you know, team physicians um, and uh, consultants um, with the league um, to provide medical coverage, right? And it's sort of a careful balance between um, taking people, but not taking too many people, right? Because um, it's a bubble and then you want to tightly control how many people are here. And so, you know, I interviewed with the uh, league representatives because I saw it as a great opportunity to provide service um, for the NBA and to, uh, you know, be there to, um, you know, take care of the player's health and, um, I also saw it as a unique experience. It was once in a lifetime experience to be uh, in a bubble like this, or although it may not be a once in a lifetime opportunity if there is another bubble next season. <laughs> um, let's back up just a, a second. What, how did how did your involvement with the N, uh, NBA PA begin? Uh, what, yeah. what, how did that work? Is it just through the hospital special surgery, or were there other con connections that you had to to get you involved with them? Yeah, so the Hospital Special Surgery um, is the official hospital for the NBA Players Association. So, um, you know, just in my role as an orthopedic surgeon there and my background with um, as a basketball player and uh, my interests, obviously, in taking care of professional athletes, um, help take care of the Bulls when I was in fellowship in Chicago, um, it seemed like it was a natural fit. So the hospital asked me if I would be uh, the hospital's uh, you know, representative to the PA. And as part of that, I would be uh, their medical consultant. So there are two um, orthopedic consultants uh, with the Players Association, uh, myself, and then Ashish Beatty uh, at University of Michigan. Were you involved in any of the planning bubble-wise, or was that something that you were a little less involved in? Yeah, so I was a little less involved with that. And, you know, I, I would say that the bubble architects, as I like to call them, you know, they did an outstanding job. You know, some of the uh, more gray haired members of the medical staff uh, team, you know, they worked tirelessly uh, on creating the bubble. And, you know, when I came into the bubble, I was just uh, so blown away by all of the details that um, they had thought through to create uh, the bubble, both for um, providing orthopedic and medical care, but also for uh, managing uh, COVID, right? So for yeah. having COVID-free bubble and, you know, look, the details of the lengths that the NBA has gone to to keep COVID out of the bubble is well documented at this point. But, um, you know, it just hadn't dawned on me in terms of just how intricate, intricate that was. For sure. You know, can you walk us through like what your day-to-day -day is like down there for people who kind of want that inside info? Yeah. So I will, I'll walk you through my day-to-day. -day. My day-to-day is actually pretty boring, but here's my day-to-day. -day. Well, it's not boring. It's actually super exciting, but it's boring in that it's the same thing, right? So, um, so I typically will wake up at 6 a.m. So the COVID testing centers here open at 6 and I just like to avoid the crowd. So I wake up at 6 a.m. There is a health uh, monitoring app that is uh, synced to a thermometer and a pulse ox in our rooms. And so I will wake up, I'll measure my pulse ox, the pulse ox reading. So for, for those who don't know, pulse ox is a measurement of your oxygenation, your oxygen percentage. So if you have a low uh, oxygenation, you probably have some kind of respiratory problem. 
Um, so, and it has to be above 96% uh, for you to pass. So I'll wake up, I'll do my pulse ox, I'll measure my temperature, um, and then I'll fill out my COVID questionnaire, um, which basically, uh, you know, I test that I haven't had any exposures or anything like that, um, and, I, and that I don't have any symptoms. Then there's always this uh, question that pops up at the end of the questionnaire where they ask you if you want um, to have access to a mental health professional, which I think is terrific because, you know, yeah. uh, I think that being in the bubble can be, can be difficult, right? Being away from home, being away from family um, can be difficult. And so I fill out that questionnaire every morning and then I walk over to the COVID testing facility and I get my nasal and my oral swab. Um, and, and, then, and then that's my sort of morning COVID routine. Um, all of these and all of that information is um, um, basically synced to a wristband that I swipe into. You have to swipe into and out of uh, stadiums and indoor areas, indoor dining areas and things like that. Um, so that usually takes me to about 6.30ish. Um, then I will either go for a walk around the Disney campus, two laps around the out, outer perimeter. You can't leave the perimeter because then you leave the bubble and then you're subject to a quarantine on your way back in. So I'll do a, either two laps, which is about uh, four miles, or I'll just go to the gym and do some resistance training. Um, the gym does have strict COVID um, uh, parameters where there can only be four people in the gym um, and it closes during certain times. So if I go there and some early birds are in there, then I'm like, okay, I can't do my resistance training today. I'm going to have to just do my morning walk. And so that typically will take me to about 7 30, 8 o'clock. Um, I'll shower. Then we hop on, I hop on an 8 30 uh, physician call. And so that physician call typically is discussing uh, issues around the campus, which include tests, positive tests, right? So there's 1,200 people getting tests and you know there's gonna be a certain number of false positives and things like that. So you have to make a determination about what does that mean? Um, who has legitimate exposure? Who's in quarantine? Who's not? Um, and then any medical issues for the players, right? Where you know if someone gets hurt, how, making sure that they're getting treated appropriately. Um, and if there are any issues that popped up on the prior day in terms of the game coverage. Um, and so then, you know, we do that call. It's sort of open-ended depending on the number of issues there are to talk about. Um, and then I actually have to do telemedicine after that. So then I will um, take care of my patients in New York because, you know, they're, it's great that I'm in the bubble, but the patients, my patients still need me and I still need to have access to them. So I'll do my morning telemedicine. Um, and then that usually will take me to noon. I'll have lunch. And then um, the schedule has become a little bit lighter. But earlier on, when there were seeding games, there were about seven games a day. And so basically, the game started from 1 p.m. and went till 9 p.m., right? So the tip-off for the last game would be 9 p.m. So depending on the coverage duty, you know, I would often cover two to three games a day. And so you'd basically be working covering basketball games from one till midnight because you know the 9 p.m. game um, it finishes at 11:30 midnight and then you want to make sure you're checking with the teams make sure that everyone is okay um, if anyone is hurt then you take them to x-ray take them to MRI if needed if it's an emergent MRI we have an MRI truck on on site to do MRIs um, and then I head back to my room and rinse and repeat <laughs> I mean, it's, it's 
you know, it's got to be a grind. It's you're, you're talking about, you know, starting at 6 a.m. and ending at midnight and everything. But at the same time, like you're one of the few people that actually gets to, to watch these games in person now. So, I mean, how, how amazing has that been to see these guys in this atmosphere? I mean, the, the drama's already been building with guys like Dame Lillard and Luka Doncic hitting buzzer beaters and stuff. What's it been like to be in those settings and see all those, you know, those big name players hit those shots and being one of those few people that can be in the arena? Oh, it's been incredible, right? So in a typical scenario as an NBA team physician, you sort of cover one team and, you know, you follow your team and you'll, you'll evaluate players when they come to your home arena. Um, but in this setting, you know, the games are going at such high frequency every other day um, that you're getting exposure and you're covering, you know, various different teams. And so um, it's been a very unique experience to, you know, watch essentially every person in the league over the course of a month. And I um, was able to witness some of some of those things, right? So uh, Dame Lillard's uh, play in games uh, to get into the tournament and to the playoffs. And that was incredible. Logo Lillard, he was pulling up from half court in stride. And, you know, I was sitting courtside for that. It was incredible. And, you know, I don't even know if I can say this, but I've become a huge fan of Dame Lillard. I think he's an incredible basketball player. Um, and some of the things that he has done here in the bubble have been remarkable. And, you know, same thing with Luca. Luca is, you know, an incredible basketball player. Um, Donovan Mitchell having an incredible run. You know, obviously the usual suspects like the LeBrons, the Anthony Davis, the Kawhi Leonards, you know, those, those guys are at the top of the field and they're continuing to show their dominance, you know, Giannis. Um, and so, yeah, I've been able to see all of that um, and it's been incredible. You blogged a little a little bit about this, but the energy in the bubble with no fans seems to be as though they're doing fine, right? They're not – there might be like a little dip in the game, but they've replicated some sound and the bench, you said, were standing and stuff like that, similar to how they do it in soccer. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, so the, the fan uh, noise has actually been uh, – you know, my goal before I leave the bubble is to find the sound engineer because they're super <laughs> – super smart whoever that is um, because it feels like you're in a real arena where they have the oh yay you know all, all of that is I love that yeah. that's awesome all of that is timed perfectly and they even have I don't know if they meant to do this but they even have things like fake whistles right so in arenas you have some people have a fake whistle to try, try and throw the players off mm -hmm. Um, they have those very small details. Um, the music, right, during warm-up is, is basically the same music that they have at their home arenas for the home games, right? So for the players, they have a choice about the music, and so it sort of replicates or tries to replicate some of that home court advantage. Um, and you can tell that the players are making, the bench players at least, are making a concerted effort to you know, be each other's, uh, you know, cheerleaders, right? They are cheering very vocally. Um, and the players who are playing, they're feeding into it, right? Like they're yelling and yelling at the bench and pounding their chest, all the things that you would otherwise do if there are fans there. Um, and, you know, there, there's definitely something to play for. And these guys are, are playing hard. I think it's been, you know, for Megan and I kind of working in well, we're in different roles, but seeing how things are kind of structured in the bubble, like seeing things like plexiglass behind the scores table, like 
it kind of like makes you wonder like, is that what college basketball season could be like if we get to that point? Like what are the changes that we're gonna have to make even at Columbia? Like how interesting, how different things are gonna be. So it's been definitely like, I watch it. I watch the games with like a different vantage point than a different, than the casual fan I feel like. Cause it, I feel like, you know, what, sure. what are some things that we're seeing on here that we're gonna have to incorporate Levy in? So it's, it's really wild to watch outside of the game as well as the stuff that's going on the court too. Yeah, I you know, look, this is this is kind of the fun part, right? Is the speculation about the future because you can just no one's going to hold you to task and you can just speculate on what things could be and should be and um I think that the NCAA is certainly going to have to get a little creative um to hold um a college basketball season. <clears throat> um and the reality is that when college basketball season occurs, it's going to be in the winter. And so short of a vaccine, um, you know, you're going to have to take the usual precautions, if not um, more. And so, you know, trying to figure out what a college basketball season looks like is something that is kind of fun to speculate on. Um, I believe it was Coach K who said that, you know, you just can't go another year without having uh, March Madness. And I agree with that. I think that, um, you know, to a certain degree, there should be um, some kind of March Madness, some kind of basketball, um, whether that's an abbreviated season or just jump right into conference tournament and then uh, NCAA March Madness. Um, but I think something should happen. Hopefully. I think that's what we're hoping for. Yeah, we all hope that. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get kind of boring without sports going on. We should be starting yeah. our fall seasons right about now. And, you know, it's life is definitely different. And we can't believe we're still doing this five or six months later. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's, it's very curious. And, um, you know, look, at some point, this will be behind us and we'll get back to some kind of new normal. But it's also, it will be curious to see, you know, what of this uh, sticks, right? Like, I think that, you know, the people who s keep track of certain metrics and things like that will say, you know, this really worked well in the bubble in terms of uh, basketball style and, um, you know, NBA scheduling. Uh, maybe when we get back to stadiums and arenas, maybe we, we do this, you know, going forward. Do you have any other... Um... I know you already said the sound is great, like intricate things that the NBA has implemented that you might not have thought would have needed to be something bubble related um, in terms of keeping everyone safe and distancing, stuff like that. Yeah, let me, give me a second, let me think. Um, so one of the things that um, is going to happen in the next round is that family members are going to come into the bubble. Right. So um, the NBA is allowing four close family members to come into um, into the bubble. And so that has certain considerations where um, you then will have to quarantine uh, those family members when they come into the bubble. Um, you'll have to sort of monitor them in the same way that you are monitoring staff and employees. But then you also will have to limit the number of people who have access to the stadium. So sort of thinking a little bit about the uh, operation side of managing crowds and managing um, who the players can, can bring, right? So, you know, taking it back to the college basketball world, 
um, if you were to tell a student that they can only have one, um, you know, fan at the game, one, one ticket, that's something that, that's a reality. That's something that's a reality for some of these NBA players where, um, you know, how do you choose who comes to the game um, and which game? And so that's definitely a level of consideration that um, I never even, that was never even on my radar. You spoke a little earlier about everyone wearing a wristband. Um, is there, talk us, talk to us a little bit about what is on that wristband. It's just your data, everything that you said, COVID related, and then it's access to the gym and everything else. Is there any other, I know there was a ring that NBA players were maybe wearing, heart rate, yeah. something sports tech related that's still going on. Yeah, so 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 the the magic band, it's it's essentially a Disney band that's been uh, retrofitted by the NBA to be synced to this app, right? And so the app has whether you've been COVID tested that day, whether that COVID test is positive, your pulse ox, your uh, temperature, um, and then your exposures. Um, and if you uh, and so there's obviously contact tracing as well, right? So if you've had exposure, then when you go to swipe in at the arena, um, it will flash red. Um, so if everything is good, it flashes green. Um, so, so then there's that. Then there's the aura ring. So then the aura ring is basically a ring that monitors your heart rate um, and it can monitor your heart rate during sleep. And it's basically supposed to tell you when you can go to, you know, when you should go to sleep um, for, you know, maximum sleep um, ability. And it can, in theory, monitor uh, your REM cycle. Um, and it also will tell you your heart rate variability during sleep. And so the thought is that um, it basically has a sense of your baseline um, heart rate and um, parameters such that if you were to have an aberration in that um, and you were starting to get sick with COVID, it would potentially pick that up. Um, and then beyond that, there is this um, essentially a motion sensor that is attached to your badge where um, when you get within six feet of someone, it starts beeping. And so it's basically a six feet. Oh, wow. And, you know, as you can imagine, it gets pretty annoying on the bus, right? Where you can't really be within six feet. Um, and, but it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, you're too close. And, um, and so that, those are the big things in terms of uh, ensuring social distance. Wow. Is there just a bunch of beeping going on when you guys are on the bus? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of beeping. You can you can silence it, but yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite the symphony. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean the the bubble it's successful so far. Cross fingers. I'm sure it will continue being, but it's been so awesome watching basketball back on TV and having everyone down there doing their part. Yeah, I mean, look, I I would say that the NBA has an A on this test in terms of uh, if the bubble is a success. They've done a great job. They've thought of all of these you know, various things uh, to ensure social distancing. Um, they, you know, ensuring testing and not just doing testing, but they are also advancing the field, right? Where they're taking the results from um, what they're learning and from the PCR samples and they partnered with Yale and they potentially will be able to produce, um, you know, 
cheaper, more mass reproducible tests. And so, you know, <clears throat> talk about corporate social responsibility, right? Like that, it's not just, this is not just the MBA saying, um, oh, uh, we need to have this bubble and make a bunch of money and forget about everyone else. They are taking, taking advantage of the fact that they're getting all this data um, yeah. and tests and there are, uh, they're pushing innovation in medicine. So I think the MBA has done a good job. I think that they have uh, laid out the template um, for future bubbles. I think that the play, it's easy to sort of overlook the players and say, you know, these are millionaires who are just making millions of dollars doing this, but it's, it's a challenge, right? So Paul George last night talked about his um, issues with depression and anxiety here in the bubble. And, you know, for a lot of these players, they've had their family be their support systems, you know, um, backbone for forever, right? You know, parents and significant others who come to every game and things like that. And now they can't do that. I've seen guys, uh, you know, right after game hop on FaceTime with the family and, you know, it's, you know, they won't, you know, they, they're, they miss their loved ones. And so they, these guys who are here in the bubble, they also deserve a lot of credit for um, doing what they're doing and for providing entertainment to America. You brought up uh, Yale's involvement with the new saliva tests and everything like that. How proud uh, are you that, you know, another fellow Ivy League institution has kind of stepped up and, you know, a lot of Ivy League institutions during this pandemic have kind of banded together and kind of helped, you know, with research and new products and testing and things like that. How does it, how does that make you feel as an Ivy League alum to, from two different institutions? Oh yeah. I mean, it makes me super proud. I wish it had been at one of my alma maters, <laughs> of Columbia, but I'll take Yale as a, as a, as a runner up, but um, no, you know, look, I think that um, <clears throat> how to say this carefully, I think that um, there is a certain vacuum that's left where, um, you know, institutions and corporations um, have sought to step in um, to address public health. Um, and, um, you know, I'm very proud that uh, Yale and Ivy League institutions have taken that leadership mantle and that leadership role and the MBA is, is able to partner with them. And you know, look, I, I think that ultimately um, that is what, um, you know, things like that is what makes America great. All right, Ben, thanks so much for taking some time. Actually, Mike, sorry, I do have one. I do have one more question. Of course you do. And this is our weekly segment called Megan just thought of something. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ben, is there, what's the NBA food like down in the bubble? How's that been treating you? So, you know, it's funny. I get that question more than I realized that I would get where, you know, people are interested in what the food is like. Well, the reality is that it's, it's Disney food, right? So if you're in Disney world, it's, it's Disney food. But um, I think early on there was actually a bad rap, um, no pun intended, um, (laughs) for the uh, NBA food from some of the videos and things like that that were sent, um, by the players but I don't know what that says about my food palette but I've actually um, really enjoyed NBA bubble food when I was in quarantine I was in quarantine for four days I ate more in quarantine than I eat ever and you know I would have three meals delivered to my door 
you know, I would have so much food and I'm just not a wasteful person. I would just stuff myself and just take a nap on the bed, right? That was, the four days of quarantine in my hotel room in Disney were probably some of my most memorable days of 2020. Uh, <laughs> the food and the lack of responsibility. Um, but on the day-to-day, there are, you know, these essentially uh, cafeterias where they have uh, buffet-style food. And I think that they, you know, the NBA staff and Disney staff do a good job of creating a varied, um, you know, uh, menu. And there are, you know, different things that you can have. There are healthy options. Uh, and if you have specific dietary needs, you can certainly make a, a request. Now, you know, is it some of the freshest cut sushi in Manhattan? No, but it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely um, palatable food. And um, I've, I've enjoyed it so far. Love that. I do think it got a bad rep, but I'm sure it's, yeah. sure it's great. Um, my last question is, and this could just be like a movie thing, but do you have like a specific song that you listen to before to hype yourself up for a surgery or listen to during? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So um, anyone who's been in my OR knows that um, my OR is very interesting because I I like EDM music. And so it's not very typical for surgeons to listen to EDM music. There are just some surgeons who like to listen to, um, you know, classical music because it's relaxing and easy listening and things like that. I just, I like EDM. So, um, you know, I have, I work with, um, a few anesthesiologists and they know my, so I had HSS, the, the anesthesiologist controls the music. So they know my musical preferences and, you know, they'll be playing whatever the rest of the OR enjoys. And then, you know, when it's time to start and they hand me the scalpel, EDM, Tiesto radio. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Best answer I could have asked for. Yeah. For me, it's, it's kind of rhythmic, right? I'm just like, yeah, yeah. This is, my hands move better and I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's really great. Cool. On that note, I think uh, we've taken enough of your time. You got a lot of important things to do, but we want to thank you so much for taking some time today. And again, you can uh, you can read about Ben's experience at the NBA bubble by visiting manhattansportsdoc.com. Again, we'll post the link on social media so you can check that out. Also want to thank Maggie Johnson from our athletics development office for connecting us with Ben today. So Maggie, awesome job with this. We had a great time today. So uh, Ben, thanks again so much. Uh, We appreciate you. Stay safe and uh, enjoy your time in Orlando. Mike and Megan, thank you so much. And maybe uh, when things are not so socially distant, we can uh, catch up in person. That'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. All right. For Megan Rojas, I'm Mike Kowalski. Uh, This is the Roarcast. You can catch us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We launch new episodes every Monday. Uh, You can also stay tuned. uh, We're all going to be on WKCR week uh, uh, during the week spot. So follow WKCR sports on social media to find out when you can listen to previous episodes of the Roarcast. Uh, We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.